from Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to Hollywood Unscripted. I'm your host, Scott Talal of the Malibu Film Society. With us today is, well, let's just say that he's been producing, writing, and directing since 1967. His first film was Double Trouble with Elvis Presley. And just two years after that, he produced They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, which racked up nine Oscar nominations and one Academy Award. In the 70s, he brought us Rocky and New York, New York. In the 80s, Raging Bull and The Right Stuff. In the 90s, Goodfellas. And in the 2000s, everything from The Wolf of Wall Street to this year's The Irishman. Erwin Winkler, welcome. Thank you, thank you. Collectively, his 60 films have earned 52 Oscar nominations and 12 Academy Awards. And this year, The Irishman is up in scads of categories. You know, you're the living embodiment of that old story, the guy who started in the mailroom at William Morris. Yeah, I did. Talk to us about how all of that came about and how you Well, I graduated from NYU, obviously, in New York City and went looking for a job. And um, I had read a book about Hollywood. And in that book, there was a description of an agent. And I said, well, that sounds kind of interesting. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no idea. I had been in the Army for a couple of years. So I was just before I went to NYU. So I found out about MCA, which was the big, big agency at the time. And I luckily got an interview. And and as I was walking to the office of the gentleman that was going to interview me, I heard somebody on the phone with Bert, and I realized he was talking to Bert Lancaster. And another guy was talking to Tony. I said, oh, that must be Tony Curtis. And I said, eh, this might be fun. So I did this interview, and of course, I didn't get the job because every question he asked, I had no idea what he was talking about. Mm. No idea. So to get rid of me, he said, you know, I don't think we have room for you, but there's another agency. You should go to William Morris. I think he was getting even on William Morris for some sin that they might have committed against him. So I tramped up to William Morris. I got an interview, but this time, the guy at the Morris office asked me the same questions the guy at MCA did, but I knew what not to say, at least. Right. And I got the job in the mailroom, and it was a temporary job. It was only for the summer because during the summer, everybody goes on vacation, and I was going to fill in in the mailroom. And that's how I started. And in the mailroom at the time was uh, Jerry Weintraub uh, mm-hmm. and a guy by the name of Bernie Brustein, who was really responsible for Saturday Night Live and uh, the Muppets, and uh, another fellow by the name of George Shapiro, who was Jerry Seinfeld's manager. So that was the kind of atmosphere at the Morris office at that time. You eventually worked your way up to agent. Yes. And I've read, I don't know if it's true, but you described yourself as a mediocre agent. That's an overstatement. I was a really lousy agent. I was really terrible. I was one of the worst agents they had there. I wasn't very good. I didn't like them. They didn't like me. It was a mutual society of unhappy people. I mean, how bad could you have been? You got Julie Christie her screen test for Dr. Zhivago. That was after I left. (laughs) Believe me, if I had done that when I was still there, I probably would have still been there today. When I was out on my own with Bob Charter, things were a lot different. and I I didn't like the regimentation of working for a big company and so on. That was one of my reasons of being unhappy. Talk to us about that transition from representation and into film production. Well, what happened was we actually didn't represent Julie Christie. We represented the guy who is an English film producer who had options on Julie Christie. And he asked us to arrange for her to do films based on his options. Mm-hmm. And that's how we got her Dr. Shivago. 
And in the process of negotiating for Dr. Zhivago, we spent quite a bit of time with the head of MGM in New York at the time. His name was Robert O'Brien. And after a very, very difficult, strange negotiation, as we were walking out, he grabbed me by the arm and said, you know, I need producers like you out in Hollywood. He said, they got a bunch of old guys out there and there's a youth movement afoot in America. He said, so uh, get a script. And if you get a script, maybe we'll uh, make you a producer in Hollywood. I'd like to see you in our uh, studio. I didn't have a script or anything, but a couple of days later, I got a call from the head of his production in New York, who said they had a script that they thought was perfect for Julie Christie. He said, why don't I give it to you? You read it. If you like it, you call Mr. O'Brien and you give him the script because he doesn't read anything and I can't get him to read scripts. So he wants to be in business with you. There's a good chance that maybe if you give him the script, he'll read it. Mm -hmm. So here was how pretty ridiculous when you think about it. The head of MGM story department was giving me a script to read and then give to his boss. I read the script. I didn't think it was particularly good, but I gave it to Mr. O'Brien. I said, well, this is a script we have that we think Julie Christie will want to do, which probably was a big, big fib because she had better taste than that. But would you read the script and uh, and see if you're interested? And he called me a couple of days later, and sure enough, he called, and he said, you know, I read that script you gave me with Julie Christie, and uh, he said, I really don't want to make that picture. I said, oh, that's too bad. He said, but wait a minute, I have another idea. I said, what is that? He said, uh, instead of Julie Christie, I'd like to do it with Elvis Presley. I said, you mean the script I gave you with Julie Christie, you don't want to do it with Julie Christie, you want to do it with Elvis Presley. He said, yeah, what do you think about it? I said, that's the best idea I ever heard. <laughs> and he said, how quickly can you get out to California? And here I am. Well, and that was double trouble. That was double trouble. Wow. You know, people say, what does a producer do? And I say, this is a guy who figures out how to say yes and to get a yes. Well, to get a yes, probably. Uh, I think, look, there are all kinds of roles of producers nowadays. I think when Bob Chartoff and I were starting back 50 years ago, the producer really was, in some ways, the auteur of the film. He he or she was the driving force behind the film. Uh, That is rare now. On The Irishman, I think we have eight producers. Wow. I did a movie called Silence a couple of years ago, a great movie with Marty Scorsese. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many producers we had. I stopped counting at some point. So the producer's role now is not easily defined, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book that's out now, because it shows what a producer did and what hopefully he or she will do in the future. And that is a kind of an all-encompassing role, from finding the initial material, hiring a writer after you screen many, many writers to see who you think is most adapt at writing the screenplay, financing it, giving your personal uh, involvement in that screenplay as far as notes are concerned or, or meetings with the writer, and then choosing a director and making a deal with a studio, overseeing the casting, overseeing the production, overseeing the post-production, overseeing the marketing of a film. Mm-hmm. It's an all-encompassing job. Nowadays, some guy who is the hairdresser to the star may end up with a producer credit. Right. And I think that that started about, I'd say about 15 years ago when the studio started looking for partners in financing. Mm-hmm. Because there used to be a, a guy put up a couple of million dollars into a film. He was very happy with an executive producer credit. Now he wants to get up there or she wants to get up there and get the Oscar. Right. And the only one that's going to get the Oscar is the producer, not the executive producer, the associate producer, the co-producer. It's got to be the producer. So that changed everything. So now I've had a film where a guy said to me, uh, yeah, we'll finance the film, but... Uh, If I can't be a producer, even though I'll never be on the set, I had no involvement in creating it or anything else, but if I can't be a producer, I'll pull out my money. You don't have any choice at that point. Right. 
the book that was just published, it's called A Life in Movies, Stories from 50 Years in Hollywood. Talk to us about why you wanted to do the book and the whole process that went into bringing it to publication. Well, writing the book for me turned out to be easier than I would have imagined, primarily because I had kept notes. I keep a diary, and I was able to very handily go back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years into how some of these projects got underway and how they got derailed or got made. Mm -hmm. So I had that to really deal with, and I liked writing. I've always been involved in the process in some way or another, either writing a screenplay or co-writing it. And uh, I sat down and I translated my diary notes into a narrative. An editor at a publishing house, Abrams, liked it and said to me, okay, why don't you go ahead and write half the book, and if we like it, we'll publish it. And I sat down and I wrote half the book, mm. and he published it. And How it long got, did it take? took me about a year. But I did a lot of other things. I produced two films while I was writing it. Right. But I sat out in my backyard every Saturday and Sunday, really, and I did a lot of work then. But I had my notes of all these projects to help me out. And I screened some of the films and renewed my interest in them in doing so. Because mm -hmm. I had forgotten some of the movies that I made back 30, 40 years ago. So I would get a print and run it and you know, remind myself of how we hired that actor, how we didn't hire the other actor. That must have been great. I mean, a chance to really refresh and revisit that whole period of your life. It was, and it was sometimes disappointing, too, by the way. How so? Well, because you look at it and you say, you know, if I had hired so-and-so mm -hmm. rather than this person, it might have been better. And some of the cases, I said, you know, look at that. Sam Shepard is so great in the right stuff. And I fought with Phil Kaufman to get, like, Robert Redford to play that role. And he said, no, no, Sam Shepard, until he convinced me that Shepard was the right. And I looked at the phone and said, you know, he was right, Sam Shepard but it's the perfect guy. So those things go into it all. When you look at how the business has changed, I mean, we could almost go into it decade by decade from what it took to produce a movie when you started in the 60s and what it takes to produce a movie or any kind of project now. Well, I think it's always been tough. I don't think there's been a film that I've made over all these years that's been easy. The financial commitment has always been extensive, so there's always some reason to say no. And it's easier to say no than yes because you have to live with the yes. Nobody is ever mad at the person that says no once they get a yes from somebody else. But it's the person that says yes who's got to live with the failure or the success of it. So it's always, as I said, always been tough. For some reason, Bob Charter and I, in the first four years from 1967, I'd say to the three years, to 1970, we produced, well, Double Trouble, The Split, The Strawberry Statement, and They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Mm -hmm. So we started pretty fast, not knowing anybody in I had never been on a soundstage before I produced my first film. In three years, we made four films, and then we just we never stopped. I think what we were pretty good at was recognizing what was film material. Mm -hmm. In college at NYU, I studied a lot of American literature. I was very, very involved with John Dos Passos and Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Steinbeck and Faulkner and all those writers in that middle American period. I kind of was able to read something and recognize its, its filmability, if there's such a word. It didn't always come out very well, but enough times it did to keep us going forward to the next one. I remember a couple of years ago, we were doing the 50th anniversary of a Western, and we managed to get a copy of the budget. It was one legal page. 
And can you imagine trying to do that today? No, certainly not on The Irishman. Strangely enough, I don't think the cost of making the film is what's so expensive today. The marketing of the film. Look, we made Rocky for a million twenty-five thousand dollars, and we spent over the course of forty years another two or three million dollars in marketing costs. Today, you open a film and you got to spend forty, fifty million dollars in marketing costs, even if the picture costs twenty-five million dollars. Yeah. And if you don't, you're out of the theater. By the way, by Monday morning, somebody else is in your spot. In the old days, back in the uh, 60s and 70s, uh, and into the 80s, you could put a film on in a theater and it would sit and sit and sit until it built an audience. Today, it's all the advertising that goes into the first couple of uh, days, really. I was going to say weeks, but the first couple of days. And the analysis of how it's going to do is very, very specific. I would predict that on this Friday, whatever film is going to open, by 7.30 on Friday night, they will tell you how much the film is going to grow worldwide over the course of the whole run of the film. Am I correct? The Irishman's the first time you've worked with a streaming video distribution? Yeah. yeah. Talk to us about the differences in that process versus the only the, the only difference between working with Netflix and a major studio, as far as production is concerned, it's very much the same as a studio operation, except that they've got a great, great creative team who know when to uh, be involved and know when to stay away. Mm -hmm. And they're really great partners. Scott Stuber, who is running the movie division, is really a terrific movie maker. He's an ex-producer, mm -hmm. an ex-studio head, and he knows what's required. So they've been incredibly supportive. Uh, you know, we said the movie's going to be three and a half hours, and they said, fine. I dare any studio head today that would come in and okay a movie at three and a half hours. No right. way. Talk to us about the genesis of that project, just the fact that you brought Joe Pesci out of retirement, the fact that you've got all three of these icons working with Marty Scorsese. It's just phenomenal. Well, the uh, driving force behind the development of the film was really, really Bob De Niro and Jane Rosenthal. They really, really found the book and nurtured it and brought the screenplay to the fore with Steve Zalian. Marty then took over at one point, and I came in at that point. Marty asked me to produce it with him because he felt that it needed independent financing and that it would be tough for a studio to agree to do a picture at three and a half hours and what it needed as far as a period is concerned, that it covered such a large period of time that it needed, you know, all the necessary uh, wardrobe, cars, nightclubs, all the uh, uh, props and locations that you need to really establish that period of time. And it would be tough for a studio to get. So we went through the process, and frankly, we couldn't get anybody to do it the way we wanted to. Yeah, somebody would say, yeah, if you, you want to do it for $60 million, we can do it. But we also decided early on that the characters were so rich that we didn't want to switch. Say, okay, these are the characters when they're 25, and another actor comes in and plays them when they're 35. Movies have been doing that for a long time, but it's not the way we, we wanted the same actors. And a lot of this came from both Marty and, uh, and Bob. So when we decided to do that, we checked out the technology of de-aging the actors. And uh, we found that to be incredibly expensive. So right away, we were out of the ballpark between a three-and-a-half-hour film and the de-aging process. No studio was really enthusiastic, especially Paramount that owned the project. So uh, the late Brad Gray let us have it, and uh, we took it to Netflix, and they were incredibly fast and positive, and they liked the project, they wanted to do it, and um, we were often doing it. The only difference between Netflix and the studio is, A, 
I think they were better partners than we would have had production-wise and creatively, and B, the difference in the distribution. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, we could not play in any of the big multiplexes because they wouldn't take the film. They wanted a certain window that Netflix was not willing to give. Right. When did you get Al Pacino and when did you get Joe Pesci and Hal? Well, you know what? Al always wanted to work with both Bob, but mostly with Marty. Mm -hmm. uh, coming from that same background, that same period of, of filmmaking, it was strange that Al never worked with Marty, but he never did. So he was very anxious and loved the script, but mostly he loved Marty and he wanted to work with him. And Joe, it took a bit of convincing, mostly by Bob and then Marty. He always felt that uh, he owed both of them a depth of gratitude because he was discovered by Marty and mm -hmm. Bob. And Bob and he were long, long-time friends. So he came out of retirement and said he would do it. Given the list of films that you've done, given the history, did you still just have this moment of, I got Bob, I got Marty, I got Al, and I got Joe Pesci? I mean, is there that just moment for you? No, yeah. not really. No? No. I've been around too long. Yeah. Am I correct in assuming you got into this because you were a fan of movies? No. No? No, Why? no, no, no. I, what uh, was your motivation? I was, a, I was a fan, but not like Marty Scorsese was a fan. No, what happened is I needed a job. I graduated from college. I wanted to get a job, and this one showed up. Yeah. And then I got to like it. Just being around it kind of interested me. But mm -hmm. no, I, uh, I didn't go to film school or anything. I just, uh, I just needed a job. Yeah. And it turned out to be the job of the lifetime. Hi, this is Jenny Curtis, producer of Hollywood Unscripted. We hope this show is igniting your passion as much as it is ours. Please subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. It really does matter as we bring you more inspiring conversations with the filmmakers you admire. Now, back to the show. It must have been pretty amazing that less than 10 years after you started with your first film, you're standing on the stage accepting an Academy Award. Yeah, that was kind of strange, especially when you look back at the competition. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the year, in those days, it were just five films would be nominated for Academy Award. And uh, the competition was uh, Network, All the President's Men, Taxi Driver, Bound for Glory, and Rocky was the fifth movie. Wow. Now, if I'm the producer of all the president's men or taxi driver or network, I'd say, why would anybody want to vote for that movie about some broken down fighter in Philadelphia? Was I surprised? Absolutely. But I'm sure every one of the other participants in the other films was surprised as well. Do you remember being on stage? I mean, were you present for the moment or were you just yeah, like... Yeah, you know what? It was like, okay. What happened was we had won the Golden Globe as Best Picture, and by then, Rocky had become, from the time it opened in November till the time the Academy Awards were in March of that year, I believe, it was all over the world. It was talk about Rocky, Rocky, right? Kind of the way it is now about the Irishman. So we felt pretty secure. The bad times were when we made Raging Bull, and by then I said, okay, how could we lose? Well, we lost. Then it came again. Uh, with the right stuff. We weren't facing Network or all the President's Men. We lost to some Deborah Winger cancer movie. So the right stuff didn't win. That was the disappointment. And Goodfellas came along, and we didn't win there. So it's not the win that I remember. It's the losses, frankly, right. <laughs> that really, really, 
I still haven't figured out. What qualities do you think it takes to be a successful producer? Persistence. Never take no for an answer. I mean, really, if you believe in what you're doing, you just really got to stick it out and got to wake up in the morning, ready to fight through the day until you get what you feel you need to make the movie. There... And then surround yourself with talented people. Have a good script, get a good director, mm -hmm. get good actors, and then keep your fingers crossed and hope. Do you feel like that's changed over the years? No, I think... Pretty much it's the same quality. In order to get a movie made, you still need, a, hopefully, a good script. Unfortunately, a lot of lousy movies are made with lousy scripts, but usually there's some element that has an attraction to financiers. The big thing that's changed over the course of years is there are so many different financiers, especially in the last couple of years. Since mm -hmm. streaming came across, now you have not only Netflix, but you're going to have Warner Plus, or whatever they're calling that, HBO Plus, which is in addition to the Warner Film Studio, you got Disney Plus, you've got Amazon, you've got Hulu, you've got Apple now, and you still have the major studios, although that's dwindling. Fox is now gone because of Disney. Mm -hmm. So you still, you can get turned down by five people and you still have five more people to go to. In the old days, it was five people and they turned you down. That was it. You couldn't go anywhere else. Do you feel that the expansion that these streaming services have brought to the table, the explosion of outlets. Do you feel like that's helped create a new golden age in this industry? I don't know about a new golden age, but I think it's given a great, great big opportunity for filmmakers that, mostly independent filmmakers that might have been unable to raise funds, now mm -hmm. have an opportunity to uh, get the movie made, but not necessarily exhibited in the standard way. I know that Last night, I saw a Michael Bay big action movie on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Netflix this year, for the Academy Awards, between The Two Popes, The Marriage Story, and Irishman, that's a good as group of films in different states. I mean, Two Popes would probably have been an independent film that would have been seen by a, you know, a couple of thousand people in an art house in New York and in L.A., struggled to get a couple of other runs someplace, and then would have gone on to DVD and home entertainment in some form. But now they have 159 million subscribers at Netflix. Mm -hmm. Your film is going to get seen. The Irishman in the first seven days, 26 million subscribers saw it. And their estimate is that there's approximately two people seeing it for every subscription. It means over 50 million people saw the movie. You talked about the challenges of shopping it around the Irishman and not being able, once you saw how much it was going to cost with de-aging. Sounds like it, this wouldn't have even happen without Netflix. I doubt it, but I also doubt it, even if we found somebody, I don't think, I can't conceive of him being that good a partner as Netflix were, mostly because of Scott Stuba and his hands-on involvement with us. Mm -hmm. Beyond the financing, once you were underway, what challenges did you run into as a producer, and how did you resolve them? As far as Irishman is concerned? Yeah. Not really. Once we had the financing, we had the crew that has worked with us before, at least the key personnel, and our production went very, very smoothly. You know, some people would think that a film like this is a great way to cap a career, but I get the sense that you still have so much energy, you're not ready to stop. Oh, yeah. We're, 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 <laughs> we're going full steam ahead. Now's the time to go and make more movies. What's behind that drive? It's hard for me to explain. That's just who I am. I love making movies, and I don't see any reason to stop. And what are you working on right now? 
Well, Michael B. Jordan is going to direct the next Creed, Creed mm-hmm. Three. Michael is going to direct that. And we've got a whole bunch of other stuff. Nick Pileggi is writing a script about a New York gangster by the name of Frank Costello that we're putting together. I'm working on a George Gershwin project. we got a whole bunch of things. Have you ever looked at getting into the multi-part, long-form stuff that's available on the services? I, frankly, I've looked at television, and I've never figured out how to do, get involved in television. I just have not been successful in it at all. Mm. I'd rather spend my time making a movie than doing a six-part television series. We've talked about the big films, and we've talked about the awards, but beyond those, when you were writing the book, were there any films that just really stuck with you that you say, I'm so glad that my name was on that? Oh, yeah. I think there's quite a few that I'm very proud of. Actually, I'm proud of all the movies, but there, as you say, there are some that stick with you. I think The Right Stuff is one I talked about before. I think it's just a really, really great film about America, about the astronauts, and about Chuck Yeager, and it was Mm -hmm. based on... great book by Tom Wolfe. I look back and I say, boy, that was that was a great experience. Making Creed was a great experiment that uh, I was very pleased with because we took a franchise that basically was dead and gave it to a young 29-year-old filmmaker by the name of Ryan Coogler, and uh, he brought a whole new life to it, and that was a risk. That was a chance. Why would I hire a kid that made Fruitvale Station and take over a franchise like Rocky? Right. Shouldn't we have given it to some dyed-in-the-wool director that's been around for a lot of years and knows how to do a fight scene and all, but no, no. So that, that sticks with me. Going back, getting Jane Fonda to do They Shoot Horses, Don't They? And then bringing in Sidney Pollack at the last minute after the original director left was a great accomplishment. Sidney Pollack was one of the fine, fine directors of uh, my life that I ever worked with. So there are all those. There are a lot of terrible moments. There was... uh, working with some directors, mostly I wouldn't talk about, but I would talk about Ken Russell. Mm. We made Valentino with him, and he was an asshole, but that's the only one I really disliked. But most of them were really, you know, hardworking. He was hardworking, but he was just a bad guy. So they stand out as well. Are there any chances that you took along the way that you really feel like paid off? Stallone? Um, Yeah, (laughs) that paid off. Yeah, in a big way. Yeah. Any others? Well, I think, you know, doing our first film with Scorsese, giving him a romantic musical set against the big band era was a real chance, but I wanted somebody that would take a kind of an ordinary story and make it different, Mm -hmm. and he did, and it started a long relationship that we've had now for 40-some-odd years. And Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, well, we made uh, Goodfellas, Raging Bull, Wolf of Wall Street, Silence, Irishman, Mm -hmm. and we were involved in a lot of other things as well. He was an actor for me in Guilty by Suspicion, played a film director, and then acted in Round Midnight, a musical I made in Paris. So we had a long career together. Well, I want to thank you so much, Erwin Winkler, and best of luck as we work our way through awards season. Okay, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co Media and presented in cooperation with the Malibu Film Society. This episode was hosted by Scott Talal, with guest Erwin Winkler, produced and edited by Jenny Curtis, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast for more conversations with top industry professionals discussing the movies you love. Kurt Co. Media. Media 
for your mind.